So real quick, um, just want to let you know that the workday dates are April uh, 24th and May 15th. All right, so we got two opportunities for you to come out um, and just have a good good time helping out around the church. You know, we didn't get to do it last year, so we've got a lot of things we're going to catch up on. We're going to do some stuff for the kids uh, to have some new things to play on and that sort of thing. So uh, uh, definitely mark your calendar for April 24th and May 15th. Uh, welcome to uh, to our morning worship service at, at home online or or here with us this morning. It's an opportunity for us to just uh, to to reflect on God and worship Him, not just through singing, but through understanding His Word. Uh, but before we get into that, just kind of a, a, a note on uh, some things that we're doing as a staff team, um, moving some different pieces around and, and wanted to keep you up to speed on those. Um, and I think about it like this. Yesterday, we had a lacrosse game, and, and I got sort of tricked into coaching. And, and you know how that works where like, you know, the first day they're like, hey, uh, dad, could you just like stand here and make sure no balls like come over out of bounds or whatever. And then like the next day they're like, could you just like step on the field and, and throw the balls back to us? And then like the third time I'm coaching and, and that happened. And uh, and so I'm, I'm, I don't really know the sport really well. I love what I know of it. But um, yesterday was was the first game that I was at. And uh, we and I'm not a head coach. I'm just an assistant coach. But our head coach got moved into to refing because we didn't have a ref. So I, I had to pick up responsibility. And I'm watching the players. And I don't, I don't really know who's supposed to do what. And we lost like seven or eight to three. It wasn't a good game. Um, but Throughout that game, I could see like, oh, okay, so we need these players to have these responsibilities, and you know what, these guys would be really good at that. Like the, the, the guys who are big and strong can play defense, and they can they can guard the goal, and and they can help the goalie out. And so then the second game we went on, we won fourteen to three. Totally, totally different, just moving kids around in, in different places at the places that their strengths are. So as a staff team, uh, one of our values is we do our best because it's worth doing. Our best is worth doing. We love to give our best to God. We think he's worth it. And so we want to move pieces around to maximize what God has called us to do. And so um, uh, about a little over a year ago, we hired Nick uh, Manuel to be our worship intern. Uh, and he's done a more than capable enough job as an intern. And so we're moving him into worship director. And, we're, uh, and so that position of worship director was previously held very well by Eric Hone, uh, who we're, we're, we're going to slide over into another area where he's incredibly gifted at. You've been blessed by his preaching. You, if you've uh, sat on the worship team and all, you've been blessed by his leadership in that. Um, so we're moving him into a congregational care role where he'll do a lot with community groups to make sure that we're getting the discipleship and growth that we want out of community groups. We're seeing new leaders raised up for that. Um, he'll help uh, in, in different areas of shepherding as well. Just if you know Eric, this is a no-brainer. Um, his skills are just off, uh, his experience off the chart for, for those areas. And we're just, we're just honestly incredibly blessed to have all these pieces uh, where we have them. Eric's still going to be part of the worship team, but he's going to bless us with his abilities in those areas. So um, love, love what God's doing there. And then we got the right, right players on the team. So we're excited about that. Um, but this morning, we're going we're gonna to go forward with our series that we started called One Story. And I, I just want to stop and pray and ask that God would teach us this morning. Father, this is your story. I pray that I, as a communicator this morning, do justice to it, that this is an opportunity for us to be caught up more in your story, that we would see how all along you've been telling this single story in a way to, 
to draw people to your son, Jesus, so that we can be forgiven of the things that produce guilt and shame in our life, the wrongs that we've done, so that we can find hope and live and we can be truly alive in you. And we ask for that this morning in your son's name. Amen. So uh, a couple a couple years ago, actually a couple years ago turns into a decade, uh, about 10 years ago, uh, I was with my dad and, and we were hunting and we were going across some property that had uh, you know, no trespassing signs on it. So we stopped and we asked permission to be able to go through this land. And, and the guy said, you know what, I, I don't want anything to do with this property. I'm not the landowner. Um, I, I, this is, you know, my so-and-so relative uh, owns this property and and uh, I, I don't have anything to do with it. He's, he's in the hospital. He's not going to be around much longer. I'm just here taking care of his house and, uh, he's, and his, his dog, which is this dog is just this nightmare dog. And it's just, it, it, he doesn't want it. He has no responsibility for it. And we were like, well, what kind of dog is it? And he said, it's a basset hound, which is a soft spot in my heart because we had two basset hounds growing up as a kid. And so we were like, well, if you don't want the dog, he's like, I don't want the dog. I don't know what I'm going to do with the dog. I just want the dog out of my life. I, I don't want it. I just want it to go to a good home, and I never want to think about it again. And my dad was like, I I'll take it. So the guy gives us the dog, and my dad takes it home. I didn't, I didn't live at, at their house anymore at this point. Uh, my dad takes it home, and, and the dog is a train wreck. I mean... It's, a tra it's an absolute train wreck. It looks as adorable as it could be, but it just it messes everywhere. It barks all the time. It drools everywhere. It tears things apart. It ran away multiple times, leading my dad to run it down on multiple occasions. And my dad kept it for like two weeks, and then he said to the neighbor who had a bunch of little kids, you guys want a dog? <laughs> so, so they took the dog, and then they had it for two weeks, and then the dog went to a farm, and and then, our, no, no, not the farm, not the metaphorical farm, no. No, what's wrong with you people? It went to a farm where kids enjoyed it. A couple weeks after that, my dad's watching the news. And, uh, and, and this story comes on. My dad about spits his coffee out. It's about this man who made a miraculous recovery from his deathbed. And all he wants in life is to be reunited with his lost dog, which was stolen by a trespassing hunter. <laughs> Not making this up, it was in the news the next morning on the newspaper. Man trying to be reunited with dogs stolen by trespassing hunter. And we're like, are you? No, that's not. And like, there's a tip line in there. And so my dad called and he's like, you got, you got this all wrong. We, we didn't steal it. The guy gave it to us. He didn't want it. And, like, and so we were able to get him reunited with it. But, but man, it just it, it blew up and it became this thing where we're wanted criminals for dog theft. Like, he got the story wrong. It wasn't about, we were trying to do you a favor. We thought this would be a help. And I tell you that story because when we look at this one story, I don't want us to get the story wrong. Because if you get it wrong at one part, it kind of it do, doesn't really work. The story is about God's love and his provision of a Messiah through his son, Jesus, who's going to die so that we can be right with him. And that story is the story the whole way through. It's the central theme every, every part of the way. In fact, there's this word in the New Testament that talks about how there's certain things that happen in the Old Testament, the, the earlier parts of the Bible, are, are types 
tupikos is the Greek word if you care about that type. They're things that happened long ago to foreshadow what would happen when Jesus showed up. And that these types are really carrying the story all along. So you, you read the Old Testament and what you see is, oh, this story about Moses, which you're going to look at today, was really a story about Jesus. Or this story about Daniel really was pointing to Jesus. It's all, the, the story is all about Jesus Christ. As so we look at the Old Testament, it, it, it's not this, this necessarily this harsh, angry story of, of God. No, it's the story of how God's setting us up to see that he'd provide his son, Jesus Christ. And, and so uh, we'll be in Exodus 17 today, and we're looking at a story of Israel, who's God's chosen representative nation, and, and God is... is testing them at times. He's growing them at times. And, um, and he's taking them through this journey in the promised land. And it's not an easy journey. And, uh, and he's providing for them. But here's the key. Here's one of the keys to the story. His provision isn't on their terms in their ways. It's not on their terms on their, in their ways. Let's be honest. As people, we want things to be on our terms in our ways. And when we don't get them, we really revert back to this child selfish behavior of being angry or being upset. And, and that's what happens in the nation of Israel. It's not on their terms. It's not in their ways. And, and so very much the, the journey through the desert is like a long car ride with a kid in the back seat where they're going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we ever going to get there? Are we there Right? If we have a rule in the Saxinger house, parents, you're, you're welcome to borrow this and adopt this as your own rule. You get one ask. You get one. And so we say, when we're five minutes into the trip, do you really want to use it right now? Do you want to? Do you, I'll tell you, it's going to be this long, but I, it, this is your one ask. And, and so this is, like, this is them. They're, they're, are we there yet? Only it's, 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 just, it's blown up. It's big. You, you'll see Exodus 17. Um, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they, keyword, quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. But Moses said, why do you quarrel? Again, there's that word, quarrel with me. Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I supposed to do? What, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. So you see how it escalated pretty quickly there. Like at first it's like, give us a drink. And then it's like, Moses, we're going to kill you. Whoa. <laughs> What, what happened? How did, how did it go? Well, this has been building for, for several chapters where God had provided for them. He's provided water for them before he's provided food. It's been miraculous provisions, but it was never on their terms in their ways. And so now here they're, they're, they're tested again. And, and this, is, this, is not, this is not just complaint. This is insult. This is like, you know, if you're making dinner and, and somebody comes into the kitchen and they're like, ah, oh, are we ever going to eat? That's, that's what I'm doing right here. I'm, I'm working on it right now. I've got this going, and this is for you to eat. It's this, it's this insult of you really should have fed me by now. You really, God, you really should have given me water by now. 
Uh, it's, really, it's really a story of a lack of patience. Edmund Clowney, who, who writes this book called The Unfolding Ministry, where it's a great book where he takes so many of these Old Testament stories and shows them in terms of what happens on, on the cross. He says, Israel had just been shown God's care and the provision of food for their hunger, yet they did not trust him to give water for their thirst. And Moses cries out, he says, do something quickly, God, because it's about to get Bad. Now, here's the real key to understanding this all. That word quarrel that we, we pointed out, the word quarrel is actually the Hebrew word rib, which means um, it, it's to present a legal accusation. It's a request for a courtroom setting. Like if, if you were to, to utter that and you were to say, I, I quarrel with my neighbor, what you would be doing would be asking for a formal courtroom setting that they would take your case in front of the elders of the nation and the elders would make a decision about what your, what your quarrel was about. It's this legal accusation where they're about to legally execute Moses, saying, Moses, you're a fraud. Like this whole idea of you leading us out of Egypt and, and now you're taking us in the desert, this, this, is, this is ridiculous, you're a fraud. And Moses is clear. He says, look, look, careful. If you're going to quarrel, you ultimately don't quarrel against me. You quarrel against God because I'm, I'm just the middleman here. I'm just following after him. And so you see this, this anger rise over these chapters where they're discontent with God. And now they're essentially saying, we, we, want, we want to put you on trial. I mean, the audacity of, of that idea is just incredible to me. Um, and we're going we're gonna to see two miracles, two miracles in response to this. The first miracle is God's going to give them a drink. He's going to give them water in an absolutely miraculous way. The second miracle is that God is actually going to oblige their request for a trial, which is incredible to me. Because they're going, God, you're insufficient, you're incapable. And God says, okay, if you'd like, you can put me on trial. And so we continue in verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people courtroom terminology, go out, walk across them. Take with you some of the elders, there's your witnesses of Israel, and in your hand take the staff, which is, which is judgment, which is how they would, they would execute, they would carry out judgment. Take with you the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called that place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So what happened here? God says, Moses, I want you to go in front of the people, take the elders, take the staff, the staff that you struck the Nile with and turn the water into blood. And, and they would have known, the people would have absolutely known that God took them up on their request. And so Moses is walking in front. And in this moment, it would have been like, oh, like pit in the stomach moment, like wow, like we were just, God, we were just saying that we we didn't actually, like we didn't really want there to be a trial here. This was just something we were saying. It's just this pit in the stomach moment. Like have you ever been pulled over by by a police officer for speeding, and you see that red and the blue lights in your mirror, and you realize it's for you, and it's just you just get this pit in your stomach, and you just pull over, and you you hope maybe it's not, maybe he's going to go past you, and. I mean, this is that moment for Israel. They're upset with God. They're accusing God. And then they say, God, we want a trial against you. And God says, okay, I'll give you a trial. 
And then the elders walk in front, and then the staff goes in front. Like, we're, we're good, God. <laughs> we're, we're just kidding. We don't really want a trial here. But God carries it out. And in the most miraculous way, I don't know if you caught what happened there, but Clowney says this. He says, God allows Moses to carry out the judgment upon God himself. As the rock which God was upon was struck, the life-giving water rushed out to the relief of the thirsty people. God stands in the place of the accused, and the penalty of the judgment is inflicted upon him. What a fascinating statement. That in the desert, amongst this quarrel, amongst this courtroom accusation, God says, okay, we'll have a trial. And even though at the end of the day I've done nothing wrong, we'll carry out judgment. But instead of carrying out judgment on you for your lack of trust, for your lack of faith, you can carry out judgment upon me. And what we see here is this, this connection to the grander story of Scripture. A connection where all, all of a sudden this little story is going to find a, a fulfillment in an even bigger story where the reality is that it's not that God is guilty. It's that God is willing to suffer the fate of the guilty on their behalf. It wasn't that God should have been punished. It was that God was willing to be punished for them. It was that he was willing to endure what was theirs to endure. We, Paul picks up this terminology in, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 3 where he's referring to the desert courtroom scene and he sees a desert court. He sees a connection between the desert courtroom and the cross. He says they all ate, and he's speaking of Israel, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. That when they struck the rock, in a sense they struck the Messiah where God himself was judged on their behalf, where the desert foreshadowed what would happen in Jerusalem. That the guilty would not be punished, but that God himself would take, take on their punishment. Jesus, um, before the cross in, in John chapter 7, he's, he's at the Feast of the Tabernacles. So Feast of the Tabernacles is this Old Testament, uh, it's, this, it's this festival that they would, they would have year after year to celebrate how God provided for them in their time of wandering in, in the desert as they're looking for the Promised Land, the Feast of the Tabernacles. It, it was this, this week-long processional celebration, and, and at the end of it, there would be this very solemn, very solemn, quiet um, moment where they would, they would reenact the water pouring out from the rock, where one of the priests would go get a, a, a golden pitcher and he would fill it with water and he would bring it before the people and pour it out as they would reflect on the fact that God was judged for their sin. And one year, Jesus is there. In John in chapter 7 and verse 37, it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood while everyone else sat. And while everyone else was quiet, Jesus said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And Jesus said, all of this that you're symbolizing, everything that happened in the desert really was, was pointing to me. It was about me. 
And while everybody else sat there quietly reflecting on just this somber attitude that God would be judged for their sin, Jesus stood up and he said, I am God in the flesh. That story was about me and what I'm here to do. That just as the rock was struck, I'll be struck. As water flowed out, water will flow out. Life-giving water. This was about me the entire time. I offer life itself to you. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living, rivers of living water will flow from within them. In John 19, it says, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the mention of water is intentional to take you back in time, to take you back to the place in the desert where a group of grumbling, complaining people say, God, you're insufficient. You're incapable of providing for our thirst. God, you should be judged. And God said, really, it's your sin that should be judged. But I'll be judged on your behalf instead. And so the staff in, in Exodus 17 turns into a spear in John 19. And as the Messiah is struck with it, blood and water flow from his side. And he was taking our judgment. He was sitting upon the rock in our place. You know, it's interesting when we talk about the judgment of God, most people in our society kind of cringe at the idea of a God who, who judges. And uh, my, my heart is saddened over that idea because what the scriptures anticipate in a God of judgment is a God who's willing to endure the judgment himself. That he's willing to be the end of judgment for any human being who comes to faith in him. This, this is his offer, that he sits on the rock, that he goes to the cross in your place. That instead of you being struck, he is struck. I mean, it's essentially, that's what it means to be a Christian. To say, Jesus sat in the place of judgment for me. That in his death is my life. That his payment was for my sins. To have an invested belief in that idea. And I say invested belief because there's a difference between saying, yeah, that happened, and saying, that happened for me. And what we're saying here is, is to be a Christian says that Jesus did this for me. To believe that, to invest your own, your own sense of righteousness and your own sense of destiny in the idea of the fact that God was judged on your behalf. That he gave himself up. And it sounds so incredibly simple, right? All you have to do is believe. But at the same time, it's incredibly difficult because there's such an immense amount of humility that it takes to come to that place. To say I was wrong enough, as we talked about on Easter, I was bad enough that Jesus had to die for me. But I was loved enough that Jesus was willing to die for me. And what it does is it empties any idea of that I did this. I did it. No, Israel, that's why this was somber for them to reflect on. God was judged for them. They didn't have anything to do with it. Ephesians 2 says it's by grace we're saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. If you can take credit for it, you've got it wrong. It's not about that. Jesus was, Jesus was becoming the judge on our behalf. There's two things he did in the desert, though. 
But there's two things that he did on the cross. One is he was judged for our sin. The second, the second is he poured out water, life-giving water. What's that about? Well, John in chapter 7, after Jesus proclaims this, I am the, I am the water, the rivers of life flow from me. He, John gives a little narrative. That, hey, this is, this is what Jesus meant. And uh, he says this in verse 99. It says, by this, Jesus meant the Spirit, as in the Holy Spirit, uh, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been yet glorified. So Jesus is, is saying, I want to give life. I want to give life. And he's talking about the Spirit. So we believe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all God. Um, they're, they're one. They're, it's the Trinity. Um, and so Jesus, when he's, he's talking to the disciples about leaving, about his impending death on the cross, he says, I'm going, but I'm going to send you one who's greater than I. He's talking about the Spirit. And he doesn't mean greater this way. He means it's a greater experience of who he is because the Spirit doesn't just walk around next to you. The Spirit lives within you, which is crazy to think about because we'd often say, I really would love for Jesus to walk around next to me, but the disciples in Jesus' day would say, I'd really love to be at the place where the Spirit of God lived within me, right? So, so what does the Spirit do? The Spirit brings life to life within us. He encourages us. He affirms who we are. He guides us. He comforts us. He brings joy to life. You know what he is excellent at? is leading you to be the most incredibly loving version of yourself. To love God and to love people wholeheartedly. The Spirit of God works in you to that end all the time. And one of the things that I felt God kind of focuses on uh, this morning within this text is, is to kind of throw back to the idea of Exodus 17, 17 where they're just so discontent at the beginning of it all. Uh, one of the things the Spirit does so wonderfully is he he lets us find contentment anywhere and everywhere in Jesus Christ. He lets us find contentment anywhere and everywhere in Jesus Christ through the Spirit of God. This is what, this is what he does. Um, so we could say it this way. Our contentment is founded in mercy and grace and not stuff and circumstances. Our contentment is founded in mercy and grace, not stuff and circumstances. So the famous like contentment verse that we go to is in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul writes in verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Most of us have been somewhere in that spectrum at different places, right? I've learned the secret, the secret of what? Secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, we like to just take 413, We'll put it on a coffee mug. We'll make it about scoring a touchdown in football or about getting a job. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. That's actually not what this is really about. Contentment's bigger than that. Contentment is not getting what you want when you want it. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Israel, where it wasn't on their terms and their ways. That's not contentment, the ability to get what you want when you want it. Contentment is something more than that. And if we dive into that idea of what verse 13 says, where it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what it literally says, it doesn't say I can do, it says I can be strong enough. That I am capable of being strong enough. It's less about being and more about doing, actually, which is huge because for me as a father, I care much less about when I give my kids a chore. I care much less about how the house looks than I do about their their, their value of hard work and their character and their willingness 
to, to be people who come to resources and, and solutions for their problems and they work through it. I don't really care exactly how, floor, how clean the floor is. I care about them and what they can do and why they're willing to do it and how much they're willing to do. That's, that's what I care about. And Ephesians 4, or Philippians 4.13 is, is saying, I have the strength for all the things through him who strengthens me. That within me, that there's, there's, this, there's this strength that makes me capable for whatever life could throw at me. See, contentment is rooted in capability. That's a secret. That's the secret Paul found in Jesus Christ. That he can be content because Christ has caused him to be able to handle anything that life throws at him, any situation. I can be what is necessary to be in any season, any circumstance, or any status. Any season, any circumstance, or any status. This is essentially what he says when he says, whether I'm in need or I have plenty, uh, whether I'm brought low and I'm humbled and life has changed my status, whether I moved into a season of life where it's not what it used to be and things aren't what they were, whether it's a circumstance that's not what I would like, what he's saying is through Jesus Christ, I'm capable, I have the strength to endure any of these situations because my capability is tied to Jesus, not to the circumstances, not to the seasons. That I found myself in him. And Christ is causing me to be capable of contentment in all conditions. You know what it really means? That because of what Jesus did, through giving himself, through being our judgment, through giving us life-giving water through the Spirit. You know what it's really saying is that through him we have the ability to, sat to be satisfied with any of the lots in life that we have. I saw this firsthand as, uh, hand as I uh, went to meet with, uh, with somebody from our church who recently just, just found out something medically that, that was very discouraging to them. They said, you know what? I'd like to stay here longer. I would. Stuff I'd like to do. I'd like to jump out of an airplane. But if this is what God has for me, I'm also ready to go home. Wow. What contentment. How can somebody say that? Because they've been loved by Jesus so much. Their spirit has worked in them for so, so many years in such an incredible way that life has handed them a lot that they wouldn't be satisfied with normally, but they're able to be satisfied with Jesus Christ in that moment through his strength because Jesus gave them the capability and his strength to endure whatever life had for them. And so we bring it back to the desert. And so when we go through the desert in life, we walk through those desert seasons not with a not on my terms, not in my way, God, I'm not happy attitude but an attitude that says, God, whatever, whatever the lot, it does not change the fact that you sat in my place on the seat of judgment. It does not change the fact that your spirit has come to me to give me life and to give me hope and to give me joy. And so I endured desert seasons through memories of what Jesus has done on the cross, which is exactly what Israel did. In fact, they wrote Psalms about this, about this desert experience, about how God provided water for them. And one of the Psalms, which, which is heavily invested in this idea, is Psalm 78. In verse 35, it says, they remembered that God was their rock. 
that God most high was their redeemer. That God was a rock. Was it an enjoyable experience? Was it fun? Was it No, it was testing. It was challenging. But God was something to them in that season. He was the rock. And what they meant by that was that God was judged in their place and it demonstrated his love and his love did not diminish since then. There's a verse in the scriptures that says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you know what that means? His love for you does not diminish. It doesn't go anywhere. It, it, it doesn't decrease over the years. And so the very amount that he loved you as he was on the cross is the same amount that he loves you in this second. That's the source of contentment, to understand that that love is present through all of it. Let's pray. God, this one story is incredible. I mean, this experience, this, this, this account in the desert where they put you on trial, this, this happened centuries before your son was on the cross. And Lord, they, didn't, they reenacted this in this Feast of Tabernacle year after year after year after year. And then your son shows up and says, this was all about me. This was all anticipating me. God, I pray we find our story of our journey in life defined by the terms of your story. The story which all along was pointing to how much your son Jesus would love us. God, that we would find our identity wrapped up in that story. We'd find our purpose and our value and our meaning wrapped up in that story. It's where we find ourselves incredibly loved and incredibly valued. In your son's name we pray. Amen.